broadcasting live from a big bluish green man with a strange looking goatee. I'm guessing that's significant. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and I'm the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> uh, on this episode of Pop Culture Reference, I, Garrett Strother, will be stealing the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. Broadcasting live from the National Archives Preser- Preservation Room. This is Pop Culture, Culture Reference. By the end of this episode, the Declaration of Independence will be stolen at least once. Imagine how bad we'd look if that happened. Oh man, we'd be we'd be top of the list for Harvey Keitel to come track us down. I don't think we would be at the top of the list. You know what? I he, think hey, he's in the know. He I knows things. I think there's one man above us. <laughs> just one, just one. But I am very excited to talk National Treasure with you. I really am. Like I said last week, we've been talking about it for literally years. We're gonna have to wait a little bit longer. As we cover some news. Starting off with the new DC slate as dictated by James Gunn himself. A lot of a lot of stuff in that video that he put out. There's a lot of new things coming down the pike here. But some of the more interesting ones that we were picking out here was uh, the new Superman, Superman Legacy, uh, Batman Brave and the Bold, and a Lantern, Green Lantern's TV show? That was a show? Yep, HBO show. Yeah. Uh, with both of the main Green Lanterns in it, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, they're I I'm pretty much loving everything I'm reading here. We're getting we're getting like a, a bat family in Brave and the Bold, it sounds like. We're getting some Robin action. Seamus, what do you think of the brand new cohesive DC universe? I wanna watch it, I think. I I have I we I've been saying this for a couple weeks pretty much since Wakanda Forever like I do not really care about Marvel at all anymore like is Quantumania even out it could have been out already and I wouldn't have even known <laughs> Join us in two weeks where we might be talking about the first two Ant Man movies <laughs> Oh I can't wait Walton Goggins is gonna save us But I mean I will watch these movies I'm I want to see what they're gonna do with Flashpoint now that that is. That is somehow the last bastion of what is the Snyderverse out there, and that's going to be the official switch point. I'm I'm interested a lot in a lot of these things. I'm especially interested. I'm always in for new Batman stuff. This is a Bat cast canonically. We we love Batman here. I may be interested in Superman finally for the first time ever. So that'll be great. Yeah, I I definitely think that is an interesting. Superman route Superman legacy dealing as as every Superman story does with the divide between Kent as a Kryptonian and 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 and, uh as a as a human being as it were as an earthling it's written by James Gunn who I trust with those kinds of stories I Mm. don't know does this mean that black Superman is officially kaput is that not happening anymore you think I don't know I mean it seems like they're kind of letting multiple versions of things kind of live in in their own little world here maybe we still will get that as its own kind of standalone concept i do agree with you i think this does seem like a good marriage between the marvel approach of having things be cohesive and thought out and dc's previous approach which is just whatever weird stuff people (laughs) want to make however I feel like there, I was so exhausted watching that six-minute video. 
I think there's way too much coming out. I mean, I always think there's way too much everything coming out. <laughs> but as interested as I am in some of these projects, I don't need... We're going to have, like, four active Batmen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really are. I mean... Does that bring us to our next point here that the Batman part two, Matt Reeves's the Batman part two is set for October 2025 different than Batman Brave and the Bold. It's it's branded as an Elseworlds project, which I think is very interesting. I'm very into the fact that Reeves is not going to have to be beholden to any kind of continuity. Mm. I'm very glad about that. I'm glad that they're taking their time with this one. Couple years out in October digging the Halloween. I mean, the last one was literally set at Halloween. So Batman belongs at Halloween. Oh yeah, I think think so. There's so many masks. There's so many good masks. Yeah, I'm excited for Batman too. That's probably the thing I'm the most excited about in general, DC-wise. I am going to miss their approach of just crazy stuff because we've been talking (laughs) since Black Adam on the bus to go see Black Adam. You and I had this conversation about how we're more interested in DC because it's crazy. That we are more caught up on DC generally <laughs> yeah. than anything else, which is kind of crazy to say, considering the fact that I've I've still not seen the original cut of Justice League, or BVS, or Aquaman, or like you haven't even seen Aquaman. That was like Aquaman. a that was a decent movie. I, I I would tell you to watch Aquaman. I'll watch Aquaman. I like James Wan. You know Exa- I do. That's exactly. That's really all you need to know. It's probably the last thing I want James Wan doing. I, that's not the <laughs> last thing I want James Wan doing. It's close to the bottom of things i want james wan to be doing though no, is he doing fair. too i was about I to ask you that question because that is something i had almost completely forgotten about with this new slate of stuff to look forward to at dc yes they and so i think that's the first one that is foraying in like i think it's bridging the gap between because that comes out later this year which is an insane thing and flashpoint is somewhere in the wind still Yes, James Wan is doing, he is doing Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Willem's back, I guess. I I saw him for 10 minutes in, in Snyder Cut, and I was like, hey, he's in this, <laughs> I guess. I, is he back? I could have sworn he maybe died, but I guess that does not make sense if he's in the Snyder Cut. <laughs> Never mind. Well, Never mind. I, that was also a Google auto-populate, so who knows? Who knows? Because I don't understand any of the timeline of anything for anything of dc who cares they don't understand it either but (laughs) flashpoint uh, is coming garrett do not worry the flashpoint is coming i can't believe they haven't canceled it ezra miller should be in prison oh my god uh i'm excited for michael keaton still because i'm that guy i guess (laughs) come on i'm into that i mean yeah but Am I into the rest of it? Probably not. I feel like we talk about Flashpoint regularly on the show, and every time we're like, I guess. It's always in the news, man. It's always, like, looming over us. But now I we wonder have, why. We have, we've got a little bit more of a, a, a laid-out map here, so uh, Flashpoint seems a little more intriguing to me. Well, moving on to some other news. Not something we would normally talk about, but following up on my rec center from last week the hulu original series reboot has been canceled <laughs> oh, so sad. after its first season uh this is a real shame i think i only have one episode left of the entire show apparently and i'm really digging it it has figured out more quickly than pretty much any show i've ever watched exactly what it is and how to make the characters interesting and endearing and interact well as a great cast 
I can't imagine it was particularly expensive to produce other than paying for its great cast. But I hope somebody comes along and picks this up. I don't think they will because Hulu is normally the place that that abandoned (laughs) shows go to get a second life. But I I am genuinely sad about this. And I'm going to stand by that rec center and say that if you people haven't watched it, please do go watch it. Maybe if we get, maybe that's our cape, Seamus. If we can get enough people to <laughs> yeah. watch reboot, they'll they'll bring it back. They'll bring it back, man. Uh this this bums me out because I I like I learned about this show's existence from your rec center, and then there was like the same amount of time between learning about it, you texting me that it was a that it was a full green light i should definitely be watching it and it being canceled and i i'm I'm so sad well that's really all there is to say about it but we're just plugging reboot again sorry that my rec center apparently brought on doom uh, (laughs) yeah yeah. for this project the land developers bought the rec center and turned it into condos garrett i'm sorry you you failed I failed to save the rec center. <laughs> the rec center closed on your watch. Uh, that's pretty funny. Actually, I like that. I think we should we should develop that a little bit more. Uh, a new outro segment: closing the rec center. That's a weird noise. That it's it's a little unfamiliar. It's like it's coming in so fast though. What is that? I'm just in. I'm touching my ear like I have an earpiece on. I am too. I am too. Um. Paramount Panic? Paramount Panic! Oh, is it the same kind of reaction? Who knows? Paramount, as as you delightfully put it in our doc, Seamus, is pulling a Warner warning by starting to remove their own original content. And I believe that all of it, if I'm correct, is CBS All Access legacy content that, from when it switched over to being Paramount Plus, remained on the service, including... (laughs) The Twilight Zone reboot with Jordan Peele and The Real World Homecoming. They're at it again, man. It's it's never going to stop. It is the worst trend in streaming right now. It's really scary. I mean, who knows? Who knows maybe reboot is going to get stricken from Hulu That's and it'll what I'm just saying. be gone. That's what I'm saying. That's it's so sad. There it's just like some weird bottom line profit only mindset that it's like if it's less than 10% of our revenue and it's not doing well, it's canned forever. No no exceptions, and, and they're probably just going to keep slashing titles as they go. This is their first kind of toe in the water of of doing this, but as we have seen with HBO, it is it is a slippery slope of just like getting, just clearing, clearing out things that people would other will otherwise never ever watch again or have will have no way to ever watch again and that's a shame i was really interested in watching that twilight zone reboot i guess you could say it's on me that's been out for years and i've still not watched <laughs> yeah. it but... i mean me too I, I i i've always been interested and he is a you know the new horror icon of hollywood right now it seems insane to me that 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 would just be part of the part of the group that just gets wiped away there Yeah, it's a really scary, fascinating infection that has now spread to another streaming service. Because everything that's going on at Warner Brothers, as we have documented well going through this series of Warner Warnings, that's a problem with the company top to bottom. This is now jumping to a completely different entertainment service 
that's really a bad omen for the entire future of streaming. This combined with the whole Netflix password sharing business yeah, is going yeah. on. Yeah, it's it's not looking bright. We got we are we is pop culture reference now advocating to go back to cable? Are we gonna are we gonna be that crusade? I don't think we're doing anything that stupid, but reattach the cord, Garrett. <laughs> reattach it. Um, it is showing. I mean, the streaming bubble is bursting, Ugh. and because people are going to be canceling Netflix over this. I mean, my family probably included, combined with the fact that. Multiple streamers now are bleeding their own original content with no way to watch it. I would I would never say we'd become avric ad I would never say that we would be advocates for this. But you and I have discussed before I used to be extremely anti piracy, that I was a very staunch believer in with as little royalties as people make, if they make any at all, still trying to give as much back to creators as we can. And now what I see it really as a kind of preservation, which is yeah. such a weird thing to say. Oh, yeah. I, I remember getting many side eyes from you with my my willy-nilly streaming of illegal things here and there. But, it is, yeah, it's become like a weird, like you're saying, it's like, a, it's like digging through what is left, trying to save it before it's all thrown in the fires. It's... It's like a it's like a weird it's been also used as like a protest kind of move for I've I've seen a lot of that in like the Infinity Train community and, and, and things like that. It's piracy is the new ethical streaming somehow, because it's just it's showing that people want the content that is actually made with care instead of consuming whatever is making the most money for any given streaming service. Yeah. It's a very scary, very anti art time to be trying to engage with media even though there's more at our fingertips than ever it's harder to ethically consume it in a lot of ways than Mm. ever i think especially with movie theaters being i mean not that multiplexes are necessarily ethical but at least there's something yeah yeah it's something well we'll definitely keep appraised of the general landscape our pop culture reference uh will touch on this a little bit too i think not exactly directly, but kind of the general state of, of Hollywood and streaming and media production and consumption, mm-hmm. as it were. But why don't we walk walk back to a simpler time, Seamus, <laughs> a time where the where where patriotism was strong in the hearts of, of Americans everywhere and Nicolas Cage was the only man <laughs> for the job. Ah, uh, here we go. Ghost Rider, let's do it. <laughs> For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about the cult classic films National Treasure and National Treasure Book of Secrets, or as it was renamed on home video, National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. I was straight up going to ask you about that, because I I was going to Mandela effect gaslight myself into being like, yeah, totally, I don't remember a 2 in there, yeah. Yeah, it, it is confusing, because... You and I were the perfect age, maybe a little young, but really the perfect age for these movies when they came out. And yeah, yeah, totally. I think it, it's Indiana Jones if you don't want to watch a Nazi's face melt off, you know? It's yeah. it's a little more on the, on the family side. And I think that National Treasure 2 is probably the first movie that I remember being excited about being announced and, like, anticipating the trailer coming out and... And the release date, and and going to actually see it in the theater. 
Man, I don't want to get too far into it, but I'm sorry that that is your first one. <laughs> that movie is very interesting. That movie is very interesting. Okay. <laughs> we, we, okay. First, I want I want to hear about your experience with with National Treasure. I think we should share our experiences because these are franchi- uh, franchise that this is a franchise that we both have a long history with. I know that and have loved our essentially entire lives. But I don't think yeah. we've talked about too much about where we come from. Well, yeah, I I, dev- I went to see the original one in the theater. I don't know what, that's eight or nine, maybe, going to see that with my mom and brother. And it was, I've always been an Indiana Jones kid, and that was, that scratched all the itches. And it was, I, I also am pretty sure we've talked about, we were both like weird Lincoln kids too, right? Absolutely. You loved yeah. Abraham Lincoln and all that history around him and stuff. I had so many books. I still have so many books on Abraham Lincoln. Oh, hell, trips to Springfield, going into the ghost in the library show. You remember it all. But like, uh, so so when the when the sequel was coming out, I, I, I don't remember being quite as on it, I think, as you probably were, but I was still like super, I was so excited that they were going that kind of angle and, and getting into it more again. And I had not seen the second one again since the first time I saw it in theaters until this Monday. And it was a very jarring experience. I, I got to tell you. Well, first of all, the first movie came out three weeks after your sixth birthday. <laughs> that is not true. That's it is. impossible. It was, it was, it was the end of November. It was Thanksgiving, 2004. And I saw this probably in the summer of 2005, because this is back when movies were in theaters for any length of time. And my mom took us to to the dollar movie, which was between when movies were out in theaters and when they were out on DVD. And my dad had seen it on a plane and he called from whatever business trip he was on. He was like, (laughs) Cynthia, you should go take the kids to see this movie. At the dollar movie. It's called National Treasure. And we went. And um, it was like only us in the theater. And there were these old people. This old couple right by us. And so my mom was telling them, you know. Yeah, my husband called. And he said, take the kids. And so we're here. And it'll be fun. And then after the movie, she turned to them. Because she it was, a, it was a seven and five year old that she was with. And she was like, I think that was probably less scary to him on, on the three inch screen on the plane. <laughs> It's an intense movie. It's an intense movie. People die. People die in National Treasure. Shot, exploded. You know, it's it's a lot. Yeah. So that so that was my experience with the first National Treasure, and that I mean that was if it wasn't something like Aladdin, that was probably the moment I fell in love with adventure movies because I hadn't seen an Indiana Jones by that point in my life. That's a good one to start with, though. That that it really that first National Treasure really has everything that you want in a in a kick ass adventure movie. So that brings us to Book of Secrets. <laughs> yes, it does. And oh boy, I definitely remember being not crestfallen or anything, but I definitely remember being disappointed going to see Book of Secrets in the theater. And I think that there's a couple of problems that we'll get more into in spoilers. One being the treasure is just way less interesting. The whole mystery mm. is it doesn't feel cohesive. It doesn't feel like it has the momentum that the first movie does. The The whole Lincoln Booth Diary page, Thomas, Ga- Thomas Gates thing, mm. that's interesting, I think. And uh, uh, we will and then, get into that, yes. 
it just spins too much. It, it, it tries to cover too much. The scale gets too big. And then I also think that, again, we'll talk in spoilers more, that the things that it's trying to do with the main characters are lazy and uninteresting. Yeah, in- entirely agreed. We, uh, I don't know, with such a with such an adrenaline rush that first one is, it really did disappoint in terms of the, it, nothing feels like it makes any kind of sense, even given the time jump that there is in between these movies. And I had not seen two in, in years. I don't think I'd, I think I'd seen it since you'd seen it. I don't, I'd seen it on DVD, mm. but I will say rewatching it. I I watched these movies, rewatched these movies rather, all in the last 24 hours, and I watched two first. Why? I watched them out Why? of order. Well, one, I was saving my dessert. Okay, was, yeah, that makes know, sense. I was, I, I was waiting for the second marshmallow shots, <laughs> but I actually, remembering the second National Treasure as bad, was kind of pleasantly surprised by aspects of it. One, I think the larger scale is is interesting, and they because they have they clearly have a larger budget. And again, not that all of it works together, but there are some moments that I think are actually pretty cool. And the bigger thing is, it's really funny. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like, in the first movie, Riley is funny. And the rest of the movie is pretty serious. I mean, sometimes, you know, you know Ben will crack a joke or whatever. But in the second movie, every single character is funny. All of, like, it's... And this is a, this, you are really, you're going to hate the words I'm about to say, Seamus. (laughs) Oh, God. And again, we'll get more into this as spoilers. I think, tonally, that Book of Secrets, the tone, again, I'm re, I'm emphasizing the (laughs) feeling, is the closest replicated in film that Uncharted has ever been. Now, that is an interesting thought that I was also cooking around in my own brain. All right, that is, you're not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna turn on you for that because it is. Okay. You're you're not wrong. I think that is definitely the vibes I was getting when I was watching it at like eight in the morning on a Monday. I was just <laughs> like, oh, I should really play some Uncharted right now. I was I was getting the I was getting the itch to play again because everybody's quippy and you're working together and there's more puzzles in the second one. Mm. And like like I have to turn this thing to move this thing to get to this thing which unlocks this other thing like. A vi- like a very video gamey feeling. Totally, totally. And I think the fact that I I've distilled this thought since we talked about Uncharted, which is I think that the Uncharted games are essentially if National Treasure had Mission Impossible action sequences. Yeah, that is that is a perfect little coupling right there. I was thinking a lot about Mission Impossible, especially in the first Especially movie, the first one. Obviously. Yeah. But like, man, that that is exactly what it feels like. And so I think that there, that element of it made me enjoy the second one a lot more than I've ever enjoyed it before. <laughs> I, I won't say that I didn't enjoy the second movie. I had a blast. Like you're saying, there's a lot, there's a lot of really good higher budget action sequences. There's a you know, a, a really tight car chase in Lon- uh, London, I think, maybe? I'm getting ahead yeah. of myself. I'm sorry. I'm getting quite ahead of myself. But I I definitely think the second one, while the most meandering side little whatever edge of the per- periphery of the story plots that just left to the wind, it is still a fun time to watch. 
I will say this also, that if you look at the car chase from the first movie next to the car chase from the second movie, because that car chase in the first movie is bad. It's a bad car chase. I'm str- I remember the foot chase. Where when's the car chase again? Immediately oh my following God. Yeah, right, the big right, right. sequence. The the best sequence in the movie is followed by the worst sequence in the movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't belong. It almost feels like the move on in that scene, but they just had to add a little a little extra on there that did not hit the same spot. To be fair, it's a giant cargo van and a catering truck. Which is kind of difficult, probably, to make seem super dangerous, yeah. considering they're probably going 10 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there's some parts of it. I like the part where she's hanging on the door or whatever, but th- we're not really there yet. We're not really this part of the show yeah, yet, yes. like you said. So, the first National Treasure, changing back to that, because I think that gives us more insight as to why we don't like the second one as much, mm. is so much more tight in terms of its story and the what its characters are doing and the way it presents information. It unfolds information really smartly, I think. And every reveal is exactly where it should be structurally and raises the stakes consistently, which is something that I think is hard to do in a treasure hunt movie, is to consistently mm. raise the stakes. I think that's something that even the best of the treasure hunting movies, like Indiana Jones, sometimes have trouble doing. I think... In my mind, when I'm thinking about these two, I think it's because that first movie is... The plot of the movie is following this mystery very tightly. You're... you're the, the plot is the map, is the, is the heist, is all this stuff. And then the second movie comes along and it's trying to have these core characters in this similar kind of chase. But all of these other newer, different characters are like almost negating what is actually supposed to be important, which is like following the clues and finding the, the artifacts that lead them to the next thing. It's just like, well, this one character can just do something on the complete other side of the world from the other characters that will just like pretty much put a stop to any momentum that this mystery is building. Yeah. It really, that second one does not have the same momentum. That is the big problem. And I think Ed Harris's character it's not really the problem with that movie. It's the way he's used is the problem with that yeah. movie. I, I can agree with that. I have lots to say about Ed Harris. Uh, I love him in everything, mostly, I think, maybe besides this movie. But it, he, he... You like The Abyss? You like... Yeah, you yeah. Like, Truman yeah. Show? He's up in there. I'm all, I'm all about Ed Harris, but... That one scene in Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> yeah, sure. Throw that in there. But I just... You're... He he was not utilized to hit the best of what that character could have been. It is it is a little bit of a waste considering no, he has he's moments. still good. He has and moments, sure. I think the only reason that villain works at all is because you have somebody with the intensity of Ed Harris playing him. Yes, exactly. Because the idea for the character is interesting, but like a lot of ideas in National Treasure 2, which we'll get into <laughs> in spoilers, they're just not executed well. Or at all, almost seemingly. There's just things that I, actually, seem like they very do not true. matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. So we're be- we're having to be really vague, and most people have seen these movies. I think at least the first one. So I think we just go ahead and call spoilers, so we can talk about the stuff we really want to talk about. Because even though to us it doesn't seem like a spoiler, and it's kind of the meme around the whole movie, there are things in the first one that I feel we are obligated to call spoilers on. Because if you have not seen 
the first national treasure <laughs> turn off this podcast that is go watch it yes. on disney plus and then immediately pick it back up please yeah that is it, that is it would be robbing you of an absolutely lovely experience if you listen to this first but okay, are we doing spoilers for just one? We're waiting on two. Or no, we, we're doing we... spoilers for both of them. I think. I think that's a good idea. Let's go ahead and talk about stealing the Declaration of Independence, the best heist sequence ever put in a movie ever. Maybe I I'm struggling to think of even a better heist concept. It's so insane. And again, it is the meme of this movie. It's I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. It's been said a thousand times in every joking way possible. But it is so crazy to steal the Declaration <laughs> of Independence, Garrett. That's the craziest idea that anyone in any movie has had. Because they give you a crazy concept. They they do the Babe Ruth point. I feel like I make this analogy all the time. <laughs> they give you the Babe Ruth point, And then they do it. They make you believe <laughs> that you can steal the Declaration of Independence. Oh, if you have enough weird UV gel on a weird badge that George Washington's campaign had, you can waltz in and out of the archive like nothing. Oh. I like that you said that like you're not familiar with the concept of a campaign button. You're just like, yeah, weird badge. I, I was that's... really trying to come up with campaign button just then. <laughs> Damn. I mean, it's still insane. It, there's no way it would because it requires her to like probably not wash, wash her, her hands, hands. Yeah. <laughs> or you know what if she didn't touch it or what if you didn't get the champagne glass back to get her fingerprint or what if there is literally even one guard down in the preservation room <laughs> but, uh, but it all goes off without a hitch well there's a little hitch he gets shot at in a long hallway but also i think that honestly there's two parts that make that sequence truly great one is the entire heist concept, which fits squarely within the willing suspension of disbelief. If oh, you yeah. can watch Ocean's Eleven and think that they can get away with it, you can watch this and believe that they can get away with it. But that that's where the real escalation and real brilliance of the sequence is, is in the heist that is also simultaneously happening through brute force and then the using of the Declaration's bulletproof Ugh. glass to shield yourself from bullets from other men who are trying to steal the Declaration of Independence? It's pure insanity. It is such a fun, such a good movie. That sequence alone is worth the price of admission, but it's... Ah, it's fabulous altogether. Also, smash cut to him being accused of shoplifting a replica is... The perfect hit the brakes all of a sudden and still keep this this great tense light air around everything that's happening. Him sweating, holding oh, yeah. the real Declaration of Independence like up his coat sleeve. It's it's so amazing. I think it keeps the momentum perfectly because you are. It's a different kind of tension because you know the chaos that is happening downstairs. You know the anvil that is about to fall on him, and he needs to get out of that archive and he can't and that it's brilliant because it is funny but it's not just a one-off joke to ease the tension it's building the tension it's great it's so good it's like yeah it's that that one after another it's like their heist break-in simul edited with the evil guys break-in mm -hmm. smash cut to the the tight tension back to i mean the car chase we already kind of talked about but yeah. it, it's such a great and it, it's 
such a flux in energy one after another all over and over again it it makes that like the most memorable one of the most memorable movie sequences of my childhood and it has what great screenplays have which is kinetics it you see the dominoes falling one after the other because you know that there's an inevitability to him getting caught because you know ian's downstairs you know chase is on to him you know somebody's gonna notice that the declaration is gone and He's just trying to outrun time. And the pressure of him having to buy the <laughs> declaration with a visa is great screenwriting, one, because it's just a good joke. But two, you believe that these guys are smart enough that they have taken every precaution possible to make sure that they're not going to get tied to this theft. But then three, immediately sets them perpetually on the run as fugitives for the rest of the movie because now they're on the grid as riley says man it's it's so it's amazing every every it's almost like the (laughs) i'm I'm almost gonna throw in comparison to the rocketeer of just like there are so many forces at play Mm -hmm. once you get to the climax of this the fbi is there you've got the good guys the bad guys you've got like the architects of a templar temple full of gold that they have to saw it's it's such not nothing ever stops after a pretty much after they steal the declaration even the slowdown to bringing it to ben's dad's house and doing the lemon well that's the interesting part of it is that there are so many even people who are tentatively on the same side change sides but not in a cheap plot twisty way but you know Abigail and and Patrick, his dad, are both beginning the film as adversarial mm. components and eventually are won over all to the same side through through circumstance, right? Where they all decide that they have to work together. And even Ian, they go back and forth working with Ian, the main villain of the film, or the FBI, too. Thinking back as a kid, watching that intro sequence where they're in the ice on the ship and... I didn't know what I was getting into with that first movie, so the the betrayal the the betrayal to giant pirate ship explosion was <laughs> it, that is also fully burned in my head, and not only because of uh, the rotting corpses, frozen corpses that are just kind of strewn about that that is also kind of a big part of that for me. I think this movie exists in a great space of clearly being designed as a family film, but not talking down to children in any way. They are very adult stakes with with adult characters. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's hard to think. In my mind, it's hard to think of this as like a Disney movie. And like, it, it is a family movie. I saw this with my mother. I was a, apparently a six-year-old at the time. It, it is, But watching it again as an adult, it's like I can rewatch this just like an Indiana Jones, just like any other action-adventure thing because it, it, it stands up in the writing, in the action, and it's, I don't know, it's not a, like, like you said, it doesn't talk down, so it can be for anybody, and it will be for me for the rest of the time that I've, I've got access to it. And it's not perfect, obviously, there, like, the romance does a little bit of a jump at the end, I think, where, because when he grabs her and kisses her, I don't think that (laughs) feels completely earned, it feels a little bit awkward, but... Uh, there is genuine emotion in the finale when they when they find the treasure and when you know you love Riley and you think he's a hoot, but he's also I think this is a really big, honestly, kind of innovation of that kind of sidekick role. 
where he is the funny comic relief. He's the hacker guy. But he's also really smart and an active participant in the decision-making. It's not Mission Impossible or Bond or Indiana Jones where Indy makes the call and then everybody else does the thing that Indy decides. So much of especially the first movie is spent with Riley trying to say, I think we can do this a better way, or here's why this is too crazy to work. And I really like the nuance of that character that does admittedly really get lost in the second one. Yeah, he is he is truly vital to the mission in, in that first one. He is like more than the bumbling sidekick. He is he's just the funny, capable sidekick in 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 the first one specifically. Cause the second one I feel like they lean too much into and I know his whole thing is like money, treasure, gold, all that, but I feel like they, they lose him a little bit in the greediness of that character after he loses his Ferrari. Because I don't think he is really that greedy in the first one. Like, he no, wants to get not. paid. But just, he because he respects things, even if he doesn't have the general, you know, like our intro. It's a bluish green man <laughs> with a strange goatee. I'm guessing that's significant. Like, he, he isn't just caring about him for the money, even though he is. But he still has a reverence for what's going on. Which he doesn't in the second one, I don't think, other than to be like, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just trying to push his book in the second one. He's just trying to get his friends to read his book. And get laid. Like, those are the two yeah. things he cares about in the second That's a weird arc for that movie. Justin Bartha is a very handsome individual. Yeah, are you kidding me? It's like, people are like, oh, you're not Ben Gates. Nick Cage, also, sure, a handsome man. He's not as handsome as he's he was. He's not as handsome as Justin Bartha. Yeah, seriously. And especially National Treasure 2, Justin Bartha, because in <laughs> yeah. the first one, he still has that, like, I don't know how old he was, he looks like 26, in that he still has that, like, young guy kind of roundness to his face, yeah, I feel yeah. like. And by the second one, he's, like, really grown into being as handsome as he is. And then they kind of just, like, backpedal his character into somebody who is, like, a failed author, which is sad. I feel for him in the second one, but also it's... Well, also insane that he just has the answer to one of the puzzles in his published book that nobody actually, cares I think about. that's actually I think that's a cool twist. I think the unveiling of the book is fun because then you have the great scene where he goes to Harvey Keitel and Harvey Keitel tells him what's going on and then that's how Harvey Keitel knows like oh man I just let him I just told him to kidnap the president. <laughs> because Harvey Keitel's secret Mason member <laughs> yeah, they throw that in the second one. It's like no, he's in the Fraser. first one too. He's he, he the ring is on his finger at the end of the first one. Oh, okay, all right. I guess I guess I I I remembered that as happening in the second movie for some reason. I feel like that was like a Brendan Fraser's tattoo in the Mummy Returns. It's just like, oh yeah, I've always had this. What do you mean it's significant? No, it's good. No, it's I think they they plant that seed in the first one. But oh right, in in the in the church right when in they the church at sit the down at the altar, yeah. You know, the the Masons believed that the <laughs> right. treasure was too great for any one man to hold. That's why they could, And then Ben looks over. I watched this like two hours ago. <laughs> um, but I think now is a good time to talk about the places that all of the characters start to in. And how they're not fundamentally flawed places to start them in. The idea that Riley is theoretically successful, but kind of just getting swindled by like he doesn't know how to be rich 
he d- he's living like a child's fantasy of being a famous <laughs> yeah, treasure yeah. hunter doesn't know what he's doing i think that's an interesting place to start that character i think the idea that ben and abigail's relationship which was founded on a four-day treasure hunt where they started off as adversaries on either side of the theft of one of those significant documents in history uh before falling in love you know over car chases and 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 gunfights yeah it makes a lot of sense to me that they are where they are because we were just talking about how it doesn't even really make sense that they even kiss at the end of the first movie so that that is that is that makes sense to me and even the idea that patrick is scared to see his ex-wife who again this is i think the thing i noticed I'll get back to my main point momentarily. The biggest thing I noticed this time around was how hard to retcons Patrick. Because in the first one, he's the Gates who didn't believe in the treasure, who gave up on the treasure, who it's very heavily implied that his wife is dead (laughs) and not because he says, (laughs) at least I had your mother for however brief a time. And he says that really lovingly and not like, she left me because I'm obsessed with the treasure. Oh my God. Because it's very clear in the flashback in the first movie that he doesn't want Ben learning about the treasure. He doesn't want Ben wasting his life on the treasure. He's, he's, as he says, he's the nut of the family because he's got a steady job and health insurance. And so I think, like, retconning Patrick to just be another Gates really takes away from what makes his character special in the first one, which is a guy who clearly, when he was young, shared the same passions as every other person going back in his lineage, but actually grew up and decided to have a family. And that does lead back to the main point of what I'm trying to say is, all of these characters have interesting concepts for their starting points that the film does not take even an ounce of time <laughs> to explore at all and then just magically resolves all of their arcs at the end in one fell swoop. Uh, Abigail and Ben, they're back together. It just doesn't... Like, they're back together immediately. When they're making fun of Ty Burrell in the Oval Office, they're already back together. Dude, that made me so sad for my man, Ty Burrell. He gets no respect in this movie. He gets absolutely, like, dunked on Probably got fired, I would guess. There's no cameras in the Oval Office? I mean, I don't think there are cameras in the Oval Office, but... That doesn't make sense to me. um, But I guess You don't think that the place where the president works probably shouldn't have cameras? I would imagine it has the highest security of any room in America. I'm not saying it doesn't have security. I'm just saying, like, where he meets with foreign dignitaries, where he meet, where he has... Conver- I mean, the Situation Room, obviously, would be where he... Okay, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, Regardless, my man gets destroyed and never brought up again in this movie. That That's messed sad. up. It's sad. It's very sad. Fully using him, honeypotting him in the room. It's, it's very... It's not okay. And considering how three-dimensional and full of character and respected all of the even one-off, one-scene, one-line characters are in the first one the woman who who lets abigail hide behind her counter (laughs) yeah uh the checkout person at the national archive like there are all of these different characters that they interact with and seem to even the way that the one the henchman ben knows all their names and talks to them as people that is true that is true and the second one there's no interest in doing 
any of that. It's just like, this guy's a one-off joke, and, you know, you've got the... Like, why does he fight with the kid at the Easter egg? <laughs> why do we do that yeah, whole that thing? Is, that was weird, huh? They they let... They're, they're, they're asking Nick Cage to do sillier stuff. Absolutely, in the in the sequel here. The drunk... I mean, I thought the drunk uh, Buckingham Palace scene is funny. But... I like him getting to go full cage in Buckingham Palace. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, one of the sequences yeah. in this movie that actually really works for me. But, like, it's, it's that, but then also, like, fighting with the kid and... Uh, doing the bit where his hand is in the rocks and and scaring everybody. They, Again, he, that's a very Nathan Drake thing to do. I, I was is, thinking that, that when I was watching that, which he then does in Uncharted Four. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Which is, I think is an intentional intentional reference. But yeah, I I don't get the trajectory of these characters in the second movie. I don't get why they do all of it. And the one character who does feel really grounded and fleshed out and and a good addition to the National Treasure world that is added in the second movie is Bruce Greenwood playing the President of the United States. Oh, man. I so wish that President stuff lasted longer in this movie. I remember it being so much longer in this movie. And that's the other thing that really bothers me, is they clearly clearly went, okay, we have to outdo stealing the (laughs) Declaration of Independence. What is a crazier thing? That's stealing the Declaration of Independence. And it's kidnapping the president. I think that's a great escalation of concept. Absolutely. But the and president should have, like, joined the group as, like, a hostage. <laughs> I'm slash... not saying that. I'm no, not going to I am crazy. saying that. And I think the setup, the whole Mount Vernon thing, and the fact that if you have the tiny little Easter egg that you catch, why the Gateses have the map of Mount Vernon to begin with and why they know all this stuff is because... George Washington had a slave at Mount Vernon named Charlotte, which is obviously one of the leads that they tracked down and hit a dead end on when hunting down the Charlotte. That was the Mm. route to the treasure in the first movie. I think that's a great bit of writing. However, the actual kidnapping of the president is so anticlimactic because it's not any kind of great heist or any kind of race against the clock. Nick Cage closes a door. And then they walk through the tunnel. Yeah, it's not a kidnapping. Like it's you know, not. you know, you'll go to prison for the rest of your life for kidnapping the president. It's like not. Re- I mean, even in the end, when it's like he gets the part, the part of the president gives him his word that it was all fine. It's like yeah, it kind of was all fine. What he had to yeah. hitch a ride on a truck. He couldn't just like walk back or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not that big of a tunnel. They barely left. No, it's it's a very underwhelming payoff to that idea i want like i want mission impossible 3 philip seymour hoffman vatican (laughs) stuff i want that out of national treasure and instead they put all of their budget into a big a big floor that that you have to balance on Uh, there's there's your like uncharted one puzzle right there right oh absolutely the puzzles are so uncharted-y in (laughs) once they get down into into behind mount rushmore also the Mount Rushmore stuff is stupid. It's really dumb. I hate I, it. I like the idea of, like, Mount Rushmore was built to hide the landscape that would have been identified on the map. Like, that's an interesting idea. But it's also, I mean, not that this movie isn't inherently, like, you can't try to put real world ethics onto these movies or else they fall apart. But I, I don't know. I think there's something inherently sinister to me about the fact that we are looking for a Native American treasure. <laughs> And we're yeah. like, it's actually good that we destroyed 
a sacred Native American site because it means that nobody was able to find the sacred Native American site again. It's it's I think there's literally one line where they reference like this is about unearthing a culture for people. Yeah, the president says that. Yeah. Oh, okay, so it was, I thought it was Nick Cage, but yeah, it's like one line. Or maybe Nick Cage has even... one too, but at the end, the president's like, you've done the country a great service by reminding us, da 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 you know. Yeah, 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 but th- that should have been a lot more of the the idea of why this was, because in the end, and a, a lot of my problems with Ed Harris come from his entirely sinister line of actions that lead him to, like, I, I'm gonna hold the door open for like literally minutes before he sacrifices himself in like this weird way. We're supposed to feel something about Ed Harris. He's like, I'm the first one out, and that's how it's gonna be. I've got the ancient knife, and I'm gonna hold it to her throat and like try to. Like, and in a deleted scene, he actually stabs. What? <laughs> he stabs John Voight in a deleted what? scene. What? That is like he crazy. doesn't kill him, but still though, still though, he he's like bloodthirsty through and through and his entire motivation is like queen victoria supported the glorious south we would have won the war if we would have gotten this treasure i'm pushing back i'm pushing back here because two things and i'm not saying it's not stupid i am saying it's stupid i think it's emblematic of a larger problem that we've already discussed with this whole movie however his whole thing is that the wilkinson family needs to be put on the historical map. That is true. That is true. That's his that's like one of his last lines is like tell them I found it. Me, the Wilkinsons found the treasure. And, and then and leave out that part about the knife and the the, yeah. the kidnapping you down and, here and all that. And it's supposed to be that he's a foil to Ben in the first movie. But the problem is that that's not explored at all up until that essentially those last couple of lines. Because if that was the through line through the whole thing, if it was a true, like, Belloc situation of, like, you have a shadowy reflection, <laughs> I think that would be actually compelling and interesting if the Wilkinsons are the new version of the Gates. But they don't do enough exploration of that for it to be actually compelling, because I think with that motivation in mind, that last sequence is actually very intelligently set up for that character to make that sacrifice. Because they get into a moment... Where, like, they, the entire puzzle, the entire trap is set up in a way where he cannot get out. There is literally no way that he is making it out of that place at in that moment. And he knows that the only way that he'll be remembered, that the Wilkinsons will be put on the map for finding the treasure, is if somebody is able to survive and get out and tell the world that he found it. And the fact that he says, tell them I found it. Tell them the Wilkinsons did it. That is an interesting character choice that they don't earn at all and therefore is completely negated exactly like i could i completely agree with you on that and that's why my mind goes to like the the weird confederate gold treasure thing like the entire idea that he purposefully got the gateses involved in like a like trying to show that they were part of the lincoln assassination so he could get him swept up in this hunt to then use him to get the like there mm-hmm. i don't know it's I wanted that sacrifice to feel better. I wanted it to feel more fulfilling. But again, it's every scene of him trying to kill and hurt and weasel his way through everything that, like, when at the end he's telling the president, like, and Ed Harris was there too. Don't forget that in the paper. (laughs) (laughs) It just, I, I, 
I feel weirder about it. I know. I completely agree. I completely yeah, agree that they don't earn that character yes, moment. If they explored any of that more, that would have felt a lot less weird. But they just straight up don't, and that's sad. I also, I tell you what, how messed up is that last shot where they cut back after everybody's safe and happy in in the tunnel that leads out? They cut back to Ed Harris, Yo, barely lit by his flashlight, taking his last breaths of air before letting yeah. himself be swept under and drowned. Yeah, I did not remember that part. On the rewatch, that was shocking to see that they cut to him straight up drowning on screen. Maybe they wanted to make sure there's like, there's, you know, National Treasure, there's always like a weird way out of a temple, but that man, that man's underwater. He's done for. That's something that really stuck with me the first time I saw it in the theater. I remember that one, it's, I think it's technically two shots, really messing me up. Like really being like, wow, that was heavy. I'm nine. Like, it's like a weirdly graphic because it's very panicky. He's like faces pressed against the stone ceiling that is going to be his tomb from there on. And, uh, it is. Dark I've had that nightmares he, that are that exact scenario that you're Ed Harris. Oh, that is a nightmare. No, I oh, mean, God. I just mean like I'm drowning in a dark room and there's only an inch of air left. Ben Gates can't save you in that dream, man. He tries. No. He really does try. And I that is that is exactly what I oh. knew he would do. But duh. And I believe that Ben is willing to die. Oh, yeah. To yeah. save his... You make my parents leave? That's messed up. Again, yeah, I'm yeah. nine. The idea, it's difficult for me now to think, okay, if I was in a situation, could I ask my girlfriend to make my parents leave so that I will die saving their lives like because i don't believe like my parents would never forgive my girlfriend for making them do that they wouldn't i just know they wouldn't it's uh, you gotta give them that nick cage stare down from the other end of the the flooding hallway and they'll know how serious you are it's so these are big existential questions to to put into this movie (laughs) that hasn't earned any of them seriously it like that is a rattling question and I'm glad it's one that I wasn't aware enough to consider when I was that young. Because it's upsetting. It's an upsetting scenario. Yeah, that whole... But luckily Ed Harris died, so we don't have to worry about any of it. Yeah, Ed Harris is dead. They go, they cut back later and everyone's just excavating the site. They had to drag Ed Harris's drowned body out of there. And so I remember asking my dad when we were leaving that movie. I was like, so when they went back, they had to like find his body. Oh my, my dad was God. like, yeah. Jeez, God. <laughs> Uh, which is, I mean, it's the same question, but you, you, they don't remind you. It's like, imagine if they got down to the treasure room in the first one and Shaw's body was just sitting oh there. Oh my crushed. God. That would be kind of hardcore, if I'm being honest, but it's not, <laughs> it's not what that move, this franchise was at the time. No, but I feel like that's the tone. That's the tonal shift that it exhibits. Um, we haven't talked about Helen Mirren. She is given nothing interesting to do, but she is good for what she's here for. Yeah, she's got a couple of really funny tequila throwaway lines that, you yeah. know, that, that I, full childhood memories of my mom laughing in the theater at that one. Every time I pack my toiletry case, I think about their argument about the toiletry case. <laughs> do you really? I really do. That's so funny. Oh, man. I should we I would love to broach the topic of page 47 with you, my boy. Well, I think we're probably going to find out about that next week from what I've heard about the National Treasure TV show. Oh, wow. Okay. That is big news. Holy crap. I'm not sure. I don't I don't really know. I know I know Riley's in it. 
Because I saw the first one, maybe two episodes, and I wasn't thrilled about them, but we will talk about <laughs> all of the season next week. Because I know a couple of things. I know I know a couple of the I know the the two FBI guys, like Harvey Keitel and the other guy, are in it. No kidding. And I and I know that Riley is in it. And I am assuming that in the finale Ben Gates will show up and it'll set up National Treasure Three. But I I have always held on hope that National Treasure 3 will be about page 47. I, I really want explanation. My little kid brain was, like, ready for National Treasure 3 a thousand years ago after seeing yeah. Book of Secrets. Well, because I, yeah, I, I want to know, because what can possibly live up to the hype? Because just, it can't be just another treasure. It has to be a treasure that is connected inherently to a great mystery of American history that is unrelated to a treasure inherently. But, like, not only is there this like, great mystery that we need to solve, but also, you know, there's a treasure connected like he, to it. At the very end, he said, he's like, page 47, he's like, life-changing, sir. Exactly. Like, so that, it has to be something big. It has to be, like, the moon landing or something. <laughs> That's where my mind is going to. I they make the joke too many times in Book of Secrets for me to now believe that it's Area 51 related. Though I will say, when he takes the picture of page 47, it is the 51st picture on his camera roll, and I don't know if that means is anything. Is it really? I rewound about 10 times to see that, and it absolutely is. But I feel like that's also too early in this book for Area 51 stuff in it. I, I feel like it has to still be some kind of... It Do we know older. What- I want to know what page, like, I want to know what page the stuff that we see is. And also, okay, I had forgotten how simply the timeline is just laid out in the Book of Secrets. Because it's laid out, it's written down with no actual thought to how somebody documenting that would be. It's just like, and here is the next thing that happened. <laughs> it's like they were writing it for Ben Gates, yeah. if that makes sense. If somebody's trying to find a treasure in about 100 years, this will be a good step-by-step. And so I think that's a little bit rough. But I do. I like the whole Library of Congress scene. And in my brain, this must be a deleted scene, because in my brain there's a whole bit where he's walking across a glass roof that is slowly cracking and he's Harvey Keitel walks out and he's like hey what what's go, what you, what's going on here what i would love to see that i i i need to look up some deleted scenes or something I'll because look, that I'll, sounds I'll, so cool i'll re i'll look into that whole thing and i'll come back with the answer okay. <laughs> yes. next week for sounds our good. continued national treasure discussion okay good 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 oh man i am i'm pretty excited to get on i know you said the first couple episodes were not your cup of tea but i'm pretty excited to get into this show no matter how stupid it is or isn't i i I feel like if they are just fully setting up for for more ben gates goodies i i need to i need to get on now yeah me too i'm really excited to to get back to it and because my whole attitude about the show was maybe i won't watch it but then i'm like there's new content with Riley Poole, and I am <laughs> yeah. going to watch that. There's no way I'm not going to watch the new thing that Riley Poole is returning in. Yeah, if it was any less related to the actual movies, we probably wouldn't have even talked about it that much anyway. But it, because it's in it's in game, Garrett, we gotta we gotta take the dive. Well, allegedly, Treasure Three is slated to come out next year. I don't even think it started filming yet, so probably not next year. But Hopefully that show does well enough that people 
have gauged interest enough that they will actually come through with three because I also hope it's what's on page 47, although I don't know how that would work considering the fact that it's been a decade <laughs> since <laughs> well, the first like, one. Maybe he's over been a decade. Working, he's been working with the last... Each president's like, all right, here's the Book of Secrets. Also, this is Ben Gates' phone number. You'll you'll understand, He'll fill you in on what we're doing here. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I'm excited to see what comes up. I'm excited to continue this journey with you, Seamus. And I'm so glad that... At long, long last, we have finally talked about National Treasure on the show. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Finally. But what do you say we kick it on over to the reference this week? Let's do it, good buddy. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about Touchstone Pictures. In the 1970s and 80s, a chain of PG live-action films such as Tron and Never Cry Wolf were consistent box office failures for Walt Disney Pictures. Assuming the failure was caused by audiences believing Disney films to be only aimed at children and families, Disney decided to create a new brand under which to release more mature films. In 1984, the newly formed Touchstone Films debuted with the Ron Howard-helmed comedy Splash, starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. The film was a smash hit, becoming the 11th highest-grossing movie of 1984, and by far Disney's most successful film of that year. Seeing further successes with films like Adventures in Babysitting and Ruthless People, Touchstone Films' focus on older audiences helped turn Disney into a major studio almost overnight. In 1986, the year Touchstone Films changed to Touchstone Pictures, Disney rose to third place in the market share. Disney used the Touchstone brand to also re-emerge into television, a format the company hadn't fully engaged with in decades. Touchstone Television became hugely successful, producing series such as The Golden Girls, Home Improvement, Grey's Anatomy, Lost, Scrubs, and Criminal Minds. Contraction of the film industry convinced Disney to expand even further, using Touchstone's business model, including shared marketing and distribution divisions, to double their film output with the foundation of Hollywood Pictures in 1989. When more mature Disney-branded films such as Pirates of the Caribbean and National Treasure proved viable at the box office, Touchstone shifted to even more adult PG-13 and R-rated fare in the early 2000s. After serving as a mere distribution tool for DreamWorks Films starting in 2009, Touchstone's brand was officially shuttered in 2017 following the acquisition of 20th Century Fox, whose associated brands gave Disney all the avenues they needed to distribute mature content that didn't fit into the studio's existing brands. Touchstone was the Disney company's first real foray into brand expansion. The diversification of their film offerings which Touchstone facilitated is what put the film studio in the position to become the juggernaut it is today. Likewise, the rampant success of Touchstone television productions is what likely led to the acquisition of ABC in 1996, Disney's first major entertainment buyout, which foreshadowed their eventual takeover of brands such as Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and even 20th Century Fox. It's, it's kind of crazy to see how much impact something that I thought was going to be pretty light, like, oh, National Treasure, they almost released it under Touchstone, but then the last minute after their PG rating, they decided to release it under Disney. I thought that was just going to be our cute little pop culture reference, and revealing how much foreshadowing Touchstone's entire operation was of the, of the thought process that Disney had going forward. And I don't think it's a surprise that in 1989, the year that Touchstone kind of really boomed uh, and Hollywood was created, that was the year that Michael Eisner took over, but more importantly, that's also the year that Bob Iger joined Disney. Yeah, Touchstone really turned into this, like, 
awful foreshadowing. It was it was a stepping stone to what we know now, and that that is definitely an icky thought when you when you look into the history of it. Which is a shame because I think it started as a good thing. I think the idea that Disney was trying to diversify the kind of content they were putting out resulted in some really great works. I mean, there are films and series that Touchstone produced that I'm really glad exist, but I think it shows that that diversification soon turned into greed, which which was the first step towards monopolization, which is the reality that we're looking at now. Yeah, it's it's weird to think about, like, I love Adventures in Babysitting, but that was, like, one of the first major things that led to Disney just owns straight up everything now. Every Everything that I've ever loved is now owned by one corporation. And then they still censor <laughs> Adventures in Babysitting on Disney+. Plus. It's insult to injury, Garrett. In exactly the same way... This kind of reverting to this more conservative mindset that Touchstone was originally created to navigate around. Splash was Touchstone's first big movie that was released because it was a more mature film with nudity and adult themes and, you know, sexual innuendo. Now, when you go to Disney Plus and try to watch Splash, they have digitally censored that stuff and they've taken cussing out of Adventures of Babysitting and... It's such a shame to see them retreat into this more conservative mindset than they had 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, it's a it's a full circle of disappointment when it comes right back to Disney Plus content. It This really opened my eyes, this pop culture reference, and I d- was not expecting when prepping it today for it, for it to be quite so, quite so shocking. I feel like whenever we kind of dig into things like this, we end up finding things that are like, and they were used and acquired to do this thing that ended up being just not good for anybody but shareholders, but they did it anyway. And that's why I kind of alluded to up top, this idea that what's going on with streaming services isn't exactly surprising when you look at the big picture of the way Hollywood has been trending over the last 40 years. God, it'll it'll never stop until every all streaming services are just going to be empty voids that you pay a monthly service to get access to. Well, speaking of that, (laughs) (laughs) uh, what stupid streaming service things are you and I about to recommend on our rec center here? Oh well, let's find out, Garrett. (laughs) Save the rec center. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what are you recommending? Well, this is absolutely a streaming service thing that I we did not think about as much before our our reference here. But I have been very much enjoying the. I know you're not an anime guy, Garrett. This might give you a little extra something to come in for. Junji Ito's Maniac. Japanese Tales of the Macabre, it is a Netflix anthological anime series made by true maniac Junji Ito, world famous for the most disturbing horror manga content that pretty much everybody knows. I'm sure you've even tangentially seen a lot of his uh, very disgustingly detailed black and white inked work, but this is his, I think his first step into like full animation stuff and it is really creepy it's really disturbing i'm gonna be on the first episode wasn't really for me didn't really get me there but after that it it's smooth sailing with just short snippets little looks into different horrific 
absolutely bizarre abstract ideas for what horror can be when you have literally nothing stopping you in terms of like he can he can draw any horrific thing that comes to his mind and he absolutely does and i i couldn't recommend it enough to you well Seamus, i won't say that you sold me <laughs> well i know you're a, you got the heebie-jeebies with things that are just disgusting and brutal and and horrific but it is it's worth checking out for sure i Maybe. Un- under the other mountain of things that you've told me to watch, I might eventually get it's, around to it's that. It's easy to just pick a good episode. If, if you get, just jump into one, they're real short. Sometimes an episode has two stories. They they just get right to the point, and they, they give you a, a good creep out, a good scare, and they, they don't overstay their welcome. It's good for, like, small doses, I would say. Interesting. But what do you got for the rec center this week? Well, I'm on the other end of where you're at right now, <laughs> and it, th- I still think it's its relatively unlikely. I don't know if you've seen this or not, and it's relatively unlikely, if you haven't, that you will watch it. And I'm even more of a sellout than you, because this is direct Disney stuff, watching <laughs> on Disney+. Plus. I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but after seeing, you know, 10 years ago, the Broadway version, and not liking it really at all, I was talked by my roommate into watching... The old early '90s film Newsies, really starring Christian Bale, and I really liked it. I thought wow. it was fun. Bill Pullman is in it. Oh, no kidding! I was having a great time. The music is catchy. <laughs> Christian Bale's a good actor, even though he's a little British. Even though they don't say that he's British. Was he and, like ten years old in that movie? He must have been yeah, so I think, young. Well, he's like probably nineteen. My God! But I liked it a lot. It's that that the it's a little slow, but the staging is fun, and the this like I said, the songs are catchy, and I liked the characters, and I didn't find it nearly as insufferable or preachy <laughs> as the stage version. And I just I liked it. I thought it was I thought it was a good time. It felt like an old '60s musical, except it was made in like 1992. That is interesting. I've never heard anything but jokes about Newsies, but I guess I've never really heard anything earnestly bad about it. That 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 is fascinating. That that you're bringing me with this one you're, today. You're most likely to have probably heard something bad from me because I really <laughs> did not like the stage version at all. I often confuse Newsies and Rent for some reason, and maybe it's just because it's like, <laughs> Boy. New- isn't it like New York, like working class people doing music things? Those are technically similarities that those things <laughs> have, but I mean, I don't like either of them, really. Except uh, for this one. Except for now I like Newsies. I like <laughs> Newsies now. Um, but I don't like the stage show probably still. Maybe I do. I don't know. I've not seen it you since gotta, I was 14. You gotta rewatch the stage production, I guess. But it, it's fascinating that this is your this is your rec center today. I might just I might just have to watch Newsies. This is so strange. I just, because I went in, I was like humoring our boy Fritz. And I was like, yeah, I'll watch it, I guess. <laughs> you know? If that's what you want to do, that's a way to spend a Monday evening. But no, I it was a really good time. That is that is fast. I'm glad I'm glad you've come around on newsies. I'm glad it's always good when you can find just a version of something that you like, especially if you have such a bad opinion about it in your history. But that 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 is an interesting thing that I I might actually throw on. I will say part of the appeal of it was I had no idea Bill Pullman was going to be in it, and then 
every time he was on screen, I was like, man, yeah, Bill Pullman, I forgot, <laughs> he was, he's in this. He's sucking you back into the enjoying newsies. Well, you know how I love Bill Pullman, Seamus. Well, who doesn't? That is a good question. <laughs> but I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, that's at PCR underscore podcast. If you want to email the show directly, you can reach us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Engage with us any way you can on social media, on the platform you're listening to this on right now. Give us a like, give us a comment, give us a review. Tell us how we shouldn't watch the new National Treasure Show because it's woke <laughs> garbage or something. I don't know. Ugh. But 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 let us, let us know your thoughts because next week we will be, after all, covering the full season, the full first season, the first of many, I'm sure, of, of National Treasure Ed of history I and Seamus I'm more excited now certainly that I was at the top of this episode so oh me too dude I'm I am super ready to I'm gonna do, I'm gonna start I'm gonna watch the first episode right now that is a fact that'll be great Catherine Jones in it do you know that do you even what? know that I didn't know that oh my god this is gonna be a wild ride uh well there's 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 gonna be a lot to unpack I'm sure I, I'm excited to chat with you man I'm gonna steal the audio Samiko. <laughs> I can't I can't do it Nick Cage damn it can't do it Cole <laughs>